Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Well, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. This is Dr. Grant Stuckey. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Bob Guyette. He is an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Guyette, thanks for joining us. I was wondering if you could give us a brief history of your training and your current practice setup. Yeah, certainly. First of all, uh, congratulations on this idea and getting this podcast up and running. Uh, it's a new world, a lot of ways to disseminate information. And I think that, you know, coming out of a residency in, in my era, there, no one really cared much about educating you other than the academics and becoming a surgeon. So there's a lot more to it than that, no matter which career path that you take. So I admire you for doing this and uh, happy to be here, even on a Friday afternoon after work. <laughs> yes, I appreciate so, uh, it. Yeah, so I'm I'm, uh, I'm from a small town in Illinois and went to the University of Kentucky to, to college and then uh, lived in Barcelona, Spain for five years and then came back and went to dental school in Kentucky and then uh, medical school and uh, and residency at the University of Alabama in Birmingham and then came out to Arizona in 2000 and excuse me, 1989. So I started off with uh, essentially from the start with two practices as the single practitioner. I did join uh, another another doctor, but but that was uh, only for a couple months as I kind of got started and ended up just going into my own practice. And so for 27 of the 32 years I've been doing this, I would go to two uh, two offices, Scottsdale, Arizona, and kind of the East Valley, if you've ever been out to Arizona, and then uh, Avondale, Litchfield Park area in the West Valley. So there was a time when um, that was the fastest growing City, Buckeye, Arizona, Goodyear, Arizona, in the United States. That in 2008-9 just came to a screeching halt. But by that time, I'd been there for, for many years. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday in Scottsdale, Tuesday, Thursday, West Valley. So I traveled across the, you know, across the city a little bit, and I really enjoyed it. Two different kinds of practices, but, but, but not all that different. But So anyway, my practice currently, uh, when I first started out, a lot of trauma. I didn't know anyone in the city. When my wife's sister husband uh, was a trauma director, though, uh, down at a hospital in downtown Phoenix called Good Samaritan at that time. And uh, I had never been to Phoenix before. Uh, before I was in medical school, I was doing my trauma rotation. And since he was a trauma director, I, I called him up. I was at, in Birmingham, Alabama. I said, hey, uh, Uncle Tom, you mind if I do my trauma rotation with you instead of at UAB just to see a, a different program and, and whatnot? I said, sure. So we got that arranged. And so I did a six-week trauma rotation here in Phoenix, Arizona. The weather was November. Weather was great. I'm going looking around, say, "Hey, this is not so bad." And so, and, and he let me do so much, so much stuff that it was, it was a very, a very interesting time. So with that, when I finished my residency at Alabama. I thought, you know, about staying there in, in, in Birmingham. Uh, also, Lexington, Kentucky. We have a lot of uh, good friends there. Uh, that was another possibility. I liked the West. I looked a lot of Southern California. Anywhere from Newport Beach to you know Century City, Beverly Hills area, and then Orlando, Florida, Scottsdale, Arizona, and ended up coming here. And, and, and so we set up 
threw out our shingle uh, in 1989 and started essentially both practices uh, about the same time. Now I, I don't do much trauma. It's mostly office-based, although we do um, office-based orthognathic surgery over the last uh, 18, 20 years. So we're doing single jaw cases, double jaw cases uh, in our you know, ASA one and two patients with a board-certified anesthesiologist, general anesthesia in our in our facility here, our surgery center, and and then we we do our post-op um, here in the office, and then they send them home, and and so that's that's worked out very well for us. And so I like doing orthognathic surgery, that plus uh, cosmetic surgery, which is also about half of what I do, and the rest is kind of traditional oral surgery except for TMJ. And the trauma that I get are people, families that I know or former ER doctors or people that that come to me not in the middle of the night anymore. I did that time. And how did you get into doing cosmetic stuff? Because I'm guessing you didn't have much training in that originally. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I was I was in the right place at the right time. I was at University of Alabama, and they, at that time, uh, were just starting to do some cosmetic uh, procedures. There was a resident that had gone ahead of me about four years ahead of me at Alabama, and he decided to switch over to ENT, and, and that turned into ENT cosmetic surgery. He did a fellowship with a guy named Galen McCullough, E. Galen McCullough, who was uh, one of the premier cosmetic surgeons of, gosh, the last 50, 60 years. And uh, that was in Birmingham as well. And so when he, he finished that facial cosmetic fellowship, he was one year short of being board eligible as an oral surgeon too. So he wanted to spend one more year and, and, and so he could be board eligible in oral maxillofacial surgery. So we cut a deal with him. He, he came, spent a year with us, and he had to teach us everything that he learned. So with that, we started gearing up and, and getting patients from the clinic and the VA hospital and, you know, wherever we could find someone with a pulse that needed some kind of cosmetic surgery, be it a veteran or whatever, we offered it to them. And, and so we, we were able to get quite, quite a good experience uh, that way. And so that's how I learned during my residency. And, and I, didn't take a, I didn't do a fellowship, and, but I feel that uh, by the time I had finished my chief year, I had done uh, either primary uh, surgeon or uh, at least doing half of the procedure on probably 25 blepharoplasties and 12, 14 facelifts and and the rhinoplasties, which is uh, the most interesting and difficult, probably 35 or 40 rhinoplasties. So I felt very comfortable coming out and I was able to continue that once I got here to Scottsdale, Arizona, but not without a fight. I was a uh, you know, when I got to town and was applying for privileges, uh, it was uh, kind of an uproar. I had a target on my back going to surgery committee and, and hearing from these plastics guys and a few ENT guys and, you know, how could uh, a dentist do facial cosmetic surgery and, you know, on and on it went. So, and I had to do, I think, a total of, with the different hospitals, probably 45 or 50 supervised cases, cosmetic cases, by someone who had privileges. And so what that meant is I got to call my competitor plastic surgeons who couldn't stand me anyway and ask them to see if they would supervise my case coming up next Tuesday, eyelid surgery or whatever it was, rhinoplasty. And some of them flat refused, but turns out there was one guy, a general plastic guy who grew up about three blocks from me in my uh, hometown of Ottawa, Illinois. And he was extremely gracious. And he, you know, he had, I had operated with him in trauma because he was here already. And, and 
you know, I, I taught him how to do cranial bone grafts for, you know, for facial reconstruction. And so we operated together. He knew what I could do. And, and he kind of came to my rescue and, and supervised a bunch of cases. And after the first one, he'd walk in and look around and sign his name and off he would go. So somehow as the time went by, I got the privileges I want, which the full scope of facial cosmetic privileges. And again, this was 32 years ago. Now the the, the uh, oral surgeons that come out who are trained are doing, you know, body cosmetics, uh, facial plastic, breast surgery, that kind of stuff too, which never really was anything I wanted to do, but it's kind of opened that, that gate here. So it's, uh, I think it's turned out well to expand the profession and what we're doing. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. That's a great history. Pretty incredible that you were able to establish yourself in the, uh, that community, being able to do all the stuff you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, it's, it's an area where there's cosmetic surgery done. There's a lot of competition, even over the years uh, within gosh, one mile radius of me here, there's gotta be 15 or 18 general plastic surgeons, probably eight or nine ENT cosmetic facial surgeons. And there's other oral surgeons that also do some cosmetic surgery as well. So there's a lot of the IQ is pretty high, the dental IQ, dental implants, but also aesthetic surgery. It's appreciated out here in, in Scottsdale primarily, but also also in our other offices as well. So I, I don't do that at one point. I thought about doing that exclusively, but I just I just enjoy I just enjoy the full range of oral surgery that that I'm doing right now, and I I, I think that. I like the fact that we're able to generate the cosmetic surgery patients by doing oral maxillofacial surgery. So most people that I operate on for cosmetic surgery have already operated on for taking their wisdom teeth out or dental implants or whatever, or or their or their children, or they know what we do. Our offices are set up, so it's kind of obvious that we also do cosmetic surgery as well. So it's not, I'm not doing the glossy uh, ads in the paper, TV time and, and all that. And it's just, um, as years go by, you get a reputation. And now I saw a post-op rhinoplasty from Monday, who's been operated on by a general plastic surgeon twice. And so has some significant deformities. And he's, you know, he refers, he refers me pretty much all his rhinoplasties and, and things now and has been for, for some time. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how all that works. And I think the other thing that, kind of changed the tone and tenor of things doing fine things is that about year three into my career as a young oral surgeon here in Scottsdale, I was uh, operating on the secretary of the governor of the state of Arizona. And uh, she was a probably 70-ish year old, very frail lady, smoked two packs of cigarettes per day and had a mandibular subperiosteal implant that was infected and chronically infected. And I was a lucky guy to try to get that thing out. Now, you probably have never tried to take out a, um, a subperiosteal implant, you know, that cold chromium cobalt stuff or whatever it is they used and smoke flying and flames. And, 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 and honest to God, she <laughs> this is the only time I ever have in my career. She goes into pulmonary edema. And, and so I'm like 30 minutes into this. This is my third year in practice, I think. And, and so, I mean, she's foaming at the mouth and, and I've got, you know, two assistants and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm suctioning out with a Yankar suction, ventilating, suction, ventilating. I, I looked in my kit, I had some Lasix, gave her Lasix and, and it turned it around uh, within, within about three or four minutes. And I was able to finish the case, which was, it's a horrendioma. 
But anyway, uh, she somehow liked us, and she said, you know, I got to be on the medical board. So I got to put you on the medical board, Dr. Guyette. And I said, well, you know, I'm just starting my practice. I got three young kids. I, I, don't, I don't have time to be on the medical board. Oh, no, 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 no. So anyway, long story short, I knuckled under her pressure and was appointed by the governor to the Arizona Board of Medical Examiners. So I served there uh, four and a half years. It was a five-year term. And I just, at that point, I, at that time, it took a whole week of your time for four times a year. So it was my four, it was four weeks out of my life to do this. And, but, but the reason I tell you that story is that, that now, or at that time, since I had the most cosmetic experience, I was the one reviewing all cosmetic cases. So now I was seeing these plastics guys who were giving me such a hard time getting privileges and such. And I'm on the medical board evaluating their cases. And, and so from that point on, it, it kind of it set a different tone and, and everything kind of settled down. I really didn't have any resistance after that. But funny how life is sometimes. That is. That's a good lesson on, I guess, taking opportunities and kind of rolling with the different things that come to you and, and just taking it as it comes. Yeah. And saying yes, you know, and say yes instead of no, no, no. And, you know, the limits to that too. I mean, you can, you can say yes too much and then you don't have the time to do anything well. And I kind of border on that and whatever I think I'm going, why am I doing all this stuff? You try to, to back off a little bit, but you know, life's uh, life's broad. There's a lot of interesting things. There's, there's always something to learn and, and something you don't know. If you're just humble enough to, you know, to, to say, Hey, you know, I, I don't know everything, but so teach me. So this past Saturday, I spent a whole day with my periodontist colleagues at the Western regional so Russian Society of Periodontology or whatever. So I spent a, I spent a day there. I'd never done a periodontist conference. So yeah, it was kind of interesting and wasn't overwhelmingly interesting, but you know, I learned some things and, and so still trying, still trying to learn. Yeah. You know, I first saw your name a few weeks ago when I was reading the Amos newsletter, there was some type of article on you and some of the other surgeons who've been professional athletes and I, I researched a little bit about you. It sounds like you were drafted in the NBA, but then you ended up going to Spain to play. Tell us about that and how that, if at all, affected your career. Yeah, well, sure. Um, so in playing at Kentucky, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty high power program. They've been really good for many, many years. Although this past year, they are awful. But uh, for the most part, uh, final four contender most years. So it, it's, it was a, a place, um, you know, fortunately I had other opportunities and places to play, but I wanted to, to try to go to the best school I can, see how good I could be. And so, you know, going there was quite an experience. I mean, it, it's, uh, there's some extremely good players that, that come there. The competition just for playing time is, is pretty huge. So it was a, a daily battle there just to, to become a starter. Unfortunately, I started all four years there, but it wasn't without a lot of, a lot of work. And, and then on top of that, if you want to do something with your life besides, you know, sports and, you know, for me, it was, it was, it was dentistry or medicine or, and, and turned out to be both. But so I was taking physics and biology and chemistry and all those kind of things. And, and I was, it was one other guy that was kind of semi-serious about school, but the rest of them, you know, it was just whatever. And they were taking geography of Australia or, you know, you name it kind of, kind of things. And so, but I learned an awful lot uh, f from that. I mean, it was the most difficult years of my life, bar none. Not dental school, medical school, residency, neuro, you know, no surgery, which we did eight weeks in our program. And that stress and that, and that amount of work and such uh, kind of, everything else has been easy since then. So, so that, that I think helped me a lot in kind of figuring out that you can do a lot more than you think you can do. And so we, we um, had, a, had a good team, our senior year. 
ranked in the top five or six throughout the whole year. Indiana was number one. They were uh, undefeated and they had beat us. We played Indiana every year and they beat us at Indiana by about 12 points or so in December. And we thought we it's kind of a long story, which I won't go into. We thought we got hosed kind of uh, big time. So uh, I'll tell you one thing anyways. So during the game, we're playing it in, in the, at Indiana and that stadium has the, the, the chairs that come really down close to the floor and it goes up really quite quickly. So the people feel like they're on top of you and it's a very, uh, Kind of wild, crazy environment, which is fine. I, you know, we like that. But there was a call in the uh, during the second half, first part of the second half, uh, that went against that went against us. And, and so, Coach Hall, Joby Hall, was my coach at that time. Although I've been recruited by a guy named Adolph Rupp, who had just retired after my freshman year. So, Coach Hall goes up to the um, you know, to the scores table and is you know talking to the official, the head official there about the call and how bad it was. And after a, couple, a minute or so, I look out, Bobby Knight comes walking up and, and he stands right next to Joby Hall. And all of a sudden he starts yelling at Coach Hall. And, and I turned around, I was, I was on the floor, I turned around looking and then Bobby Knight turned around and smacked Coach Hall in the back of the head. His glasses went flying and and the place starts going nuts. And, and we had this uh, time, at the time, a, a guy named Sid Catlett, who was a, a former college basketball player, later FBI for seven, eight years, wanted to get back in basketball. And so he was our assistant coach, one of our assistant coach. He jumps up and he gets down in his fighting stances and is going to take on Bobby Knight there at half court at Assembly Hall or whatever they call their, their stadium there. And so it took it took 30 minutes to settle everything down. They ended up beating us. And but so so we were holding a grudge that that whole year. Fast forward, we go through the season. At that time, you had to win your conference to get into the final, into the uh, tournament. There weren't there were less teams than I think it was thirty two maybe. And so we ended up, you know, going around to beat Marquette, some other good teams, and, and get to the um, final eight. And we're playing uh, in Dayton, Ohio. Turns out against Indiana again. At that point, they were undefeated, twenty two and zero, I think, ranked number one essentially all year long. So we ended. Playing them and beating them 92 to 90 without it wasn't overtime and no three point shot at that time. It was a, it was the craziest greatest game I think I ever played. Was rights and it was it was just it was just crazy. And they had a great team, but we beat them and we go to the final four. So it's Syracuse and us, UCLA, which Coach Wooden. I don't know if you're old enough to remember who he was, but a phenomenal coach and 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 uh, and, and Louisville. And so we played the first game. We played Syracuse in the Final Four, and we beat them by pretty handily. And the second game was UCLA against Louisville. And everyone thought it was going to be Louisville against Kentucky. And so we had never played, you know, two Kentucky schools for the national championship. And the game went into overtime, and this guy named Richard Washington hits a turnaround shot at the buzzer from about 18 at the baseline, nothing but net. And so UCLA goes to the championship game again. You know, they had won eight out of 11 and, and then another two or three in a row. And, and so they dominated college basketball. So anyway, we, we're, we're thinking, you know, pretty good because we, we thought Louisville was tough. We thought we could beat them too, but we thought we could beat UCLA. And so we're playing though in San Diego sports arena. So here we are in California on, uh, you know, Saturday, uh, Saturday, the games. And then on Sunday, there's an announcement that Coach Wooden is going to have a, a press conference at, at, at noon on uh, Sunday. So, all the, all the sports writers show up, and turns out Coach Wood announces his retirement. He says, "Tomorrow's gonna be my last game." So, oh, lovely! You know, California, and you know, the whole world wants him to win one more, and and you know, the stage is set. And turn, sure enough, we ended up 
playing, but we, we lost, I think it was by five points to, to UCLA. So we got second that year. So I got drafted in the end. There was an old ABA back in those days, American Basketball Association. It had teams like the New Jersey Nets and the Kentucky Colonels and, you know, some other teams, some of which made made it to the NBA and some didn't. But there was an ABA draft and an NBA draft. And so I got uh, drafted by New Jersey Nets when Dr. J and Julius Serving played for them. And and then drafted by uh, in the NBA with uh, was at that time Kansas City Kings, now the Sacramento Kings, and so I came very close to to signing with the Nets. And out of the blue, my agent got this call from Barcelona, Spain, saying that they had they had heard I hadn't signed yet and wanted to know if I was interested in potentially playing you know, basketball in Europe, in Spain, in Barcelona. And I'm going. You know, I, I'd never been to Europe and didn't, didn't know anything about it. But I thought, what the heck? Expense paid trip. So. I told my girlfriend, turned out to be my wife, that, hey, I'll, I'll be back in four or five days. I'm going to sign with New Jersey when I come back, and I'm just going to go and see. So I took off, flew there, landed, didn't speak a word of Spanish, didn't know anybody. And I, I pulled up, and the planes on the tarmac there, they didn't have uh, the jetway at that point. So we had to you know, go down the stairs and walk across the the, the concrete out to the terminal. And uh, there was maybe 30 people there, and they had cameras, and this and that. I'm going, what the hell is that all about? And, Turns out there are all these sports writers and, and such, and sports uh, is, is huge in, in, in Europe and Spain in particular, in Barcelona, and, and basketball was just coming up. Soccer, of course, is the foot, their football is a, the big sport. But anyway, they showed a lot of interest. At that time, there were Formula One races. Uh, you probably know that they raced in Monaco, Monte Carlo. Uh, but before that, they used to race in Barcelona on the Montjuic, on those mountains right outside the city. So you know, I got off the plane, got in this director's Mercedes. We went up there and, and sat there and watched all these Formula One cars, all the Spanish girls and, you know, sangria and all that kind of stuff. And and I'm going, you know, this isn't bad. <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know I, I've been to Detroit. I've been to Chicago. I've been to, you know, Cleveland. I've been to New York. and But I haven't been to Rome and Italy and Barcelona and, and these places. So, did a tryout that went well, and there was an American guy that my my agent had had uh, organized uh, that he, he was going to meet us there, and if they were, I was serious about it, he would help negotiate a contract, and yeah, right then and there. And so, you know, by day three, I'm going, I'm going to come here. I, I, I this is great. So, I ended up negotiating through this guy, not knowing these people, and there's. I mean, I could tell you some stories about that day and that these four years. We'd go on for hours and hours. But suffice to say, I signed a contract, uh, came back, got my stuff, and went back to Barcelona and uh, spent five years there uh, playing basketball, professional basketball. Come back in the summers, the off season, and that's when I was doing the real estate things. I got started in that. And, and uh, so that's another story. But anyway, so, so I played five years professional sports, traveled around uh, all of Europe, uh, Middle East countries, uh, you know, Israel and Egypt. And, and that was when the Iron Curtain was up. So we go to Romania, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia. And that was a very interesting time to go behind the curtain. And not many people got to do that, not many Americans. And, and so a very broadening experience, learn to speak Spanish, a little bit of Catalan, which is the local language. Uh, so it was very much um, um, a, a very interesting growing time. I was planning on... Uh, actually uh, starting medical school there that first year. So just a little bit of history. Uh, this was 1975. I, I, I arrived in the fall of 75. And they had a guy named Francisco Franco, who was a dictator, and uh, along with Mussolini and Hitler and, and uh, Francisco Franco in, 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 in Spain. So 
he was in, he was uh, getting very old and, and, and whatnot. So it was very much oppressive for the rest of Spain, uh, Barcelona in particular. And, and so um, in the spring of 1976, he died, he meaning Francisco Franco, and there was a kind of mini revolution where democracy, folks wanted to uh, change a country from a, um, from a dictatorship to a democracy. And, and there was a, a lot of political unrest and riots and all this kind of stuff. So we're in many times in the middle, middle of that. And, and, and so very interesting times, but I loved it. That's awesome. What an incredible experience to have at the kind of beginning of your you know, adult life. That's really cool. Wow. And you said you also got started getting into real estate or what was that about? Yeah. So one of the things you, when you, when you call me, talk to me, you know, what, you know, how, how we can help young residents and, and such get started and, and how to look at things. And none of us, well, at least in my era, got any training in, you know, life skills and, you know, finance and business and contracts and, you know, investing and, and such as that. And I think maybe there's a little bit more interest now, but still there's not, there's so much to learn. It's hard to, to get a good education with that. So back to my Kentucky year, after we finished that, that national championship game, my senior year, there were seven of us on the same, the same year. And we went on a barnstorming tour of Kentucky because at that time, many, many people in Kentucky, you never saw us play. They listened to the radio, a guy named Kaywood Ledford, but it wasn't, you know, they could, a lot of times they can have reception out in the Appalachia and all this, these places, but they, they love Kentucky basketball. They still do, but it was, it was crazy how much they love Kentucky basketball. So anyway, we kind of took advantage of that. We, we organized a uh, 22 or three or four game tour, you know, like four days. Uh, we go on Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday after uh, class or after these guys got out of bed, after I got out of class, we would get a, a van and we had the, uh, the guy who drove the van was the mayor of Lexington at that time, a former basketball player named Scotty Basler. And we would take off and we'd have a keg of beer in the back and we would drive to Inez, Kentucky or Bowling Green or, you know, three or four hours away. And we'd be drinking beer and talking, you know, and bullshitting and, and stuff. And uh, So we get to this high school gym and there would be 2000 people waiting outside and the gyms would hold two, two thousand or 2500 people. And so we get there and we'd sign autographs and they had to pay to get in. And, and so we went on this, this tour. And at the end of that, you know, I had, I think, seven, eight thousand dollars, you know, that uh, that I had saved from that because we had all get paid some, you know, depending on the gate. We got a percentage of the gate. And so most of the guys bought a new car. And, and so I was looking at that. And it, it, uh, back in that era, it was 1975. And there was a, a car called a Datsun 240Z, which was the first Datsun version, little sports car thing. And it was so cool. And uh, there was a light blue. And I remember thinking, gosh, it was $8,000. And I had $8,000 in my pocket. I said, you know what? I think I'm going to get that. Just barely fit into it because I'm six foot eight. And, but uh, there, was, there was a guy that was a refereeing during those games, most of those games, who I turned into one of my best friends and, and uh, he played football at Kentucky and he was refereeing along with being a high school coach and he was getting into real estate and, and he learned it from uh, another guy who was the head coach of a high school football team and Phil was assistant coach. And so I got to know them and, and we would sit and talk and he was starting to talk about real estate and the advantages of that. And as, you know, as far as uh, depreciation, you know, as far as leveraging and, and uh, income producing properties and, and such. And he was had just started, he had purchased some land 
and was building a duplex, which is a little house that you divide in half and you rent out each side. So, and we started talking and, and there was a new project kind of right by my house where I was living. And uh, so we talked, uh, talked and talked and finally said, you know what, I'm going to take it $8,000 and I'm going to I'm going to buy a piece of land and we'll build a duplex. And, you know, I'm 21 years old. I don't know what the hell I was doing. Neither did he really, but he had been, he had had another year, but he had a mentor as well. So we started to go around and went to several banks and, and uh, asked them for, for money. The lot cost $45,000. I had $8,000. I thought that was rich. And then it would cost, uh, actually, no, I I think it was, I think the lot was $12,000 and, and, and the house would be about $40,000 to build on top of this, of this land. So, you know, we had just smoked by. I didn't have a job. I, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I had been accepted in a dental school. So I, I was thinking maybe I'll go to dental school, but, but I ended up, you know, signing this, this contract and went out. So we decided to, uh, to get a loan and, and we're each going to build, build one of these duplexes. And so we went to six, seven, eight, nine banks, humbled by every one of them. They all said, get out of here. You don't have a job. I mean, he had a job. I didn't have a job. I just had some, you know, $8,000 that I wanted to invest. And finally, we, we got in the car one day and said, let's go, let's go to, out to the cold country. So we drove all the way to Jackson, Kentucky, and really didn't know who the, the head guy was. We heard of a, his name was Phil Smith. It turned out to be a phenomenal guy, great basketball guy. He loved it, but also just a good person for the community and stuff. And so Phil and I went to this banker and, and with our hat in our hands and, you know, I said, Hey, you know, here's who we are. Here's what we're trying to do. We got two pieces of property. They're holding it for another week. Here's what we want to do. And, and so we listened to the story and he says, uh, well, how much do you want to borrow? And I said, and I said well, I think 40, 45,000 each would be, would, would do it. And so he's kind of quiet for a minute. And uh, he says, uh, you sure that'll be enough? And Phil, Phil pops up and says, well, 50000 would be really good. Tell you what. Okay, 50000 it is. So once you guys you come back in about 10 minutes, we'll have the paperwork. And so anyway, out in, out in the cold country of Kentucky, he got their first loan after being turned down by 10 bankers there in Lexington and the surrounding area. Ended up buying the land uh, and, and, and started uh, constructing this. And, and so my girlfriend and I, now my wife, we were we were shoveling rock and foundations, and there when they pouring concrete, and later on putting up painting and learning how to co- do construction from the ground up, and so that's how it started. So then signed a contract, and and Phil ended up finishing the first project because I was off to Spain by then, and so he he got it rented for me, and then every year thereafter I would come back and take some of my money, I'd buy another piece of property, build another duplex. And so by the time I got back to dental school, I had uh, I had five uh, properties, duplexes, 10 pieces of rental income. So that was cash flowing. And so I was really ingrained in, in my head about how how they can how, how they can really help. So and and so I still keep in touch with Phil and he, he's a phenomenal guy. And, I, and I, my my version of the story is I went and got smart and he and he went and got rich. Uh, he ended up. From these duplexes, went to, to restaurants, went to hotels, and then other restaurant chains. And he, he just sold, I think, 35 restaurants. And at one point, he had, uh, I think, seven or 8,000 people working for him. And, and uh, he, he's just a phenomenal success. And, and we stay in touch. And, and so the power of that was not lost on me. I mean, I, I love doing what I was doing. I, there's all kinds of ways to do things in life and and if you can if you can find a way 
that that you can uh, become empowered and and and, and learn different types of, of, of ways to earn a living. I think the, the cash flow, parallel cash flows, besides of what you earn. One of the things that you can tell me, and I don't think they told you, is that if you're not there working, you're not getting paid, right? I mean, you got you, you got to work. And so the concept of having the assets that that produce when you're not there is, is very powerful, I think. So I guess about I mentioned that one in our previous conversations because I think that if, if as young oral surgeons and you know, once you get through the process, yeah, you got debt and such, but you can pay that off over time. And if you can, if you can spend the time and interest to put a team together, uh, that's just one other thing that you can do. You know, maybe you start by buying your house first, or maybe you start by buying your practice if that's a possibility. Or you know, and it's pretty much it has to be a team effort. I mean, I, I've got a broker that looks for properties for me all the time. I don't, you know, I learn all the time in real estate, but I've been doing it now for thirty some, thirty five years, and. But I, I just think that it's a way that that's underappreciated by a lot of people and, and especially professionals and that that are busy people. And, and there's so much that that takes time in our life if you're married or got kids and uh, plus the work and all that that goes with that. So anyway, I'm talking on uh, you can direct this however you want to go. But I, I do think that there are ways to do that by putting you know together a team, taking some courses. Got to learn. You got to put in the time to learn. And so you don't get taken advantage of. and. You'll, you'll, there's always things to learn, um, but but uh, I think it could be really positive for folks. Wow, that's awesome! I mean, what a what a great experience to be able to do that at 21. I mean, how many people own a duplex when they're 21 or 22? It's just that's phenomenal. Yeah, which, which they built it half themselves. You know, <laughs> right? the, the, the labor. We were the labor. Uh, yeah. We were the farm <laughs> of the pole. Yeah, that's amazing. But it shows you really how how awesome it can be when you use leverage and you find the right people and team around you to kind of get involved in that stuff. I mean, I I grew up with my my father's a dentist and he always was buying rental properties and I'd go over there and help him fix them up and he would just rent them for for passive income. And then I got into I don't know if you've heard of Robert Kiyosaki, but he has a lot of these business books on yeah. that, you know. Right. Yeah, he, yeah. he got back into it again. He's, he had the same kind of philosophy as Phil did way before Robert. But Robert's from Phoenix here. And uh, so we see him every once in a while around. And, and uh, yeah, he's I think he's helped a lot of people. There's a lot of a lot of truth in there. He's gotten a little bit commercial lately in the last I don't know, three or four or five years. But those those basic rich dad, poor dad books and the concepts behind those. Very powerful. Very powerful. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I'm on the same pathway. I'm sure my magnitude of passive income is nowhere near yours, but well, you, you haven't been doing it long, as long as I have too. So yeah, we kind of <laughs> have commercial, commercial side of things and we have primarily commercial uh, income producing commercial real estate. Yeah. But there's a lot of different ways, you know, homes and, you know, a lot of different things you can do. Yep. That's, that's great. I mean, great for our listeners. I think there's a lot of good resources too. I don't know if you've heard of bigger pockets, but they have a, a podcast where, they basically interview kind of what we're doing here, but they're interviewing real estate investors and they talk to people who have 500 bucks or a thousand dollars and do house hacks and different things just to make a little bit of money over time can, can grow and become pretty incredible if you're budgeting and using your money wisely. Well, good. That's tremendous. One, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was about your silhouette nitrous oxide 
invention, I guess you could say. Could you give us a summary of that? Sure. I don't know if you had a chance to use it or not, but you know, from the time I was a, a dental student, actually, and, and, and then later in oral surgery, when we, we got the, had the nitrous oxide course and you know, we, you gave it to each other and like you, you gave injections, the first injections to each other and you tried nitrous out. I said, you know, I always felt that it was a quite an excellent drug, but those masks and the way it was delivered, it was such a pain in the butt, to, not an ergonomic at all. You had to bend over on your head and you got to you know, try to do, especially on the anterior maxilla. And, and, uh, and, and so it never did make sense to me why you had to have two supply tubes and two scavenging tubes. I don't, I don't know why the, the mask itself had to be so bulky. It just never made sense to me. So I carried that with me for 25 years after I got out. And and, and it was, uh, gosh, maybe I don't know, nine or 10 years ago, 10, 11, 10 years ago, I guess. I, I started thinking about it and I wanted to use some nitrous. And I never didn't use it. I had my office was plumb for it, but it was just such a pain in the ass. It was bad for patients, bad for us, except that it was a great drug. It was a safe drug. And, 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 and I wanted to use it on my older patients, uh, on younger kids and, you know, people who wanted, you know, want, wanted some, some sedation, but not necessarily IV. So I started looking at that and uh, not knowing what I didn't know, I started you know, looking at taking moulages of people's faces and noses in particular. And, and so through a, through a period of about seven years, on, on again, off again, with uh, one staff person in particular, who was this young lady, very, in, uh, very smart uh, young lady, I, was, I started to look at doing suck downs on these moulages and creating that, you know, that uh, like for uh, trays uh, or Essex splints, you know, those little suck technique, but we do it over, over, over noses. And then I, I, I want to say, why, why couldn't we make uh, a single supply and a single scavenging? And, and why, why do the tubes have to be so big? Can you really sedate someone? Is there enough nitrous and oxygen that can go through there? And so I would get the nasal cannulas that they had at the time. They didn't have the ones like they have now that are separated in the middle where you deliver oxygen to a patient in one nostril and it gets sucked out the other side for the entitled CO2 monitor, which is probably what you guys use as well. They didn't have those. So I was, you know, putting wire around uh, these to cut off one side from the other, and, and and but that's what I was doing. I was delivering nitrous oxide and oxygen through one nostril over a a clear suck down that was very form form fitting to the nose, and and then scavenging it out the other side. And so it took me a, a long time to to get a prototype that the tubes are really kind of tiny. I was trying to get bigger ones and. I'd be over at Home Depot getting uh, little uh, little pieces from irrigation systems to put stick these tubes together, try to kind of make this thing work. And uh, finally, it got to the point where I had a prototype that that worked, and it started to work consistently. It was much smaller, and and just like nasal cannulas, goes behind the ear, and there's a bolo on the bottom. You slide up underneath the chin. Patients can turn their heads. You can you know lift, lift the lip up, work anteriorly. I don't know if you've seen a picture. I've never. I don't know if you ever used it or not. So anyway, uh, there was two companies that made nitrous oxide equipment and masks. One was called Accutron. It was out of Phoenix, Arizona. And the other's uh, Porter, Porter Matrix out of uh, Philadelphia area, Pennsylvania. And so I, I being in Phoenix here area, I, I brought this idea to Accutron and they didn't give me the time of day. And, and so I said, okay, fine. So I was at a, a national meeting. I think it was in Chicago at that time. And I was going through the exhibit hall and Porter Matrix had a thing. And, and so I kind of walked by and then I turned around, went back and talked to the guys and told them I had this invention. I thought, you know, that it could really make a difference for folks. 
And and so they said they'd have someone get in touch with me. So I didn't hear anything for two or three months. I thought, whatever, they blew it off too. And I'd work on and off. And I was still using it now at that time. Using on kids, using on adults. And so finally this guy calls me out of the blue, a guy named Mike Lynham, who had, he hadn't been there. I hadn't met him. He said that he wanted to, to come out and take a look at it. He was going to be in, in Phoenix. So he came out, looked at it, and he, and he sat down. And he said, there's, you know, 22 reasons why this won't work. You know, the tubes are not big enough. He was a former chemistry teacher and do all this stuff. And we have to have enough flow and blah, blah, blah. And I said, Mike, I said, it works. I'm using it. Here, why don't you try it? Here, come, come on in. And so he went in and put, put a mask on. He had, by that time, I had two different sizes, uh, kind of a large and a small. And, and he put it on and, and he worked and he, he, he got excited about it. And so I was able to, at that point, I, I flew to, to Cleveland, Ohio. This company, Porter, was purchased by a company uh, out of Cleveland, Parker Hannafin. It's a Fortune 100 company. It's a huge conglomerate. They had purchased that. And so I flew to Cleveland. I gave this pitch to these, these vice presidents of this company. And I had you know my pictures and whatnot. And I had a technique for actually visualizing nitrous oxide in real time. We are using FLIR imaging, which is uh, forward-looking infrared. So it's really thermal imaging. So you could have a picture of a patient and you could see the nitrous oxide coming in, the patient breathing in and breathing out, or if it's escaping or not escaping. So I was using that to, to do my studies and such to verify that, you know, how this worked. And so, you know, they saw all that and they decided to go ahead. At that, I had applied for a patent. I didn't get it, hadn't had it yet. And so I had a patent attorney and he was able to negotiate a deal with this company for the intellectual property, whether or not I got a patent or not. You know, they thought it could work. So anyway, I started working with their engineers and we would, you know, every Monday for a period of about five months or so, we would meet and they would do these CAD drawings and I would, you know, talk to them and be able to control it. It was the early kind of Zoom conference things. This is like eight, nine years ago. And so I'd make changes and they would they would do this on the CAD design and then the following week we would get back and, and do some other changes. So anyway, fast forward, we got to four different sizes. I, I measured probably 500 of my patients' noses, you know, all, all ethnic, all ethnic backgrounds, uh, kids, adults, old people, came up with a, a pediatric size and an adult, small, medium and large. And, and so we ended up making those out of silicone. They're made in uh, through, through this company. I, was, I signed a royalty agreement with them, and they produce in, in China and, and market it and sell it as a part of uh, the Porter Matrix system, and I don't know if, if you use Porter systems and such. So anyway, uh, and that's now available in the United States and, and uh, Australia and Europe and, and such. And it's been, uh, it's been going steady, steady, steady with COVID. And the other big thing, there's, there's there's several different distinguishing things. One is though it's a single use system, you know, so it, you, it's it's like a nasal cannula. It comes in a bag, you use it. It connects to a uh, bigger tubing, which is the, the non disposable part of it. But when COVID hit, the sales, you know, just just kind of went like that because people, you know, had been reusing masks or the tubing that comes all the way to here, uh, patient after patient after patient, which is not what we should be doing. And so I guess the reason I wanted to maybe mention that is, you know, a lot of people have ideas, you know, things that you think, oh, why is it done this way? Why don't I do that? And I remember one time in particular, about five years into this, I said, you know, I was talking to my wife. I said, I don't know if I should be messing with this. You know, it's taking and I would just work in between patients. If I had 80 minutes, I would never go sit down. I always went in my little tiny little lab. And, and you know, this thing is like six feet by, you know, seven feet. You know, it's, it's nothing fancy. It's like a oral surgery lab, small. My, my wife said, you know, you got to do it. You've spent too much time. Just go for it. Just do it. So kind of gave me enough energy to, to take it to this. So if you guys have ideas, some 
things get better. A lot of people have ideas. Most of them don't get to fruition. And before that, I'd invested and done lots of different things that didn't work. Uh, I didn't tell you much about those. Like uh, we had one of the first, um, I'm familiar with those mini, mini clinics and those kind of small clinics uh, that now CVS has and Walgreens. Uh, we, there was, was four of us, a F-16 pilot from Luke Air Force Base, a, a, a real estate attorney and myself and a medical doctor, a family practice doctor started a, uh, these nurse practitioner clinics in a grocery store chain called Bash's here in, in Arizona and kind of funded it and, and, and such. And, and it got, we had four locations. And in the wintertime, when people were here, we actually became profitable. And it was one of those early, early ones. So there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, you know, talking about three companies, one of which was purchased by Walgreens, which was purchased by CVS, and then, then ours, which, you know, we, by that time, we had plans for another 12 to, to, to go in and, uh, but at that point, the, this grocery store chain, who also had pharmacies, uh, kind of got into some trouble, and they ended up going bankrupt, and so everything kind of came to a screeching halt. And so I lost a bunch of money on that, and learned a lot. And and so a lot of those kind of things too. You have to be prepared to things not to work. And but a lot, and I, I, I instead of doing it all myself, I partnered with the company that 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 does this for a living, and uh, so it's been so much so much easier and better. So a lot of ways to do the things and. I guess I'd like to see uh, our young oral surgeons not only be outstanding surgeons and take care of people and, and uh, contribute to society, but also do well financially. And, and it's it's a it's a kick in the pants to be able to have something in your mind that turns out to that's being used and, and such. So I'm sure there's a lot of young guys out there that are smarter than I am, and they kind of focus their energies and, and get in the right situations. They could do things too. That's awesome. And when you were doing this silhouette and working on all of that, I mean, what was the underlying motivating factor that kept you going and through all of those stages? You know, how how did you keep at it? Well, and that, that's our thing. There were there were there were times when the longest time I think was like six months where I didn't do anything. You know, because I'd push along, push along, and get a little farther, and it was just like then other stuff came up, and it wasn't working all that great, and I, you know. And couldn't figure it out. And and I don't know. I just, there was something that was gnawing at me for 25 years. You know, the the years that I didn't do anything, I didn't even know I was going to do this. It just it just it just stuck there. And and I just I I got to do it. I just got to do it. You know, whatever it takes. It may not work. It may not you know anything. But I got to bring it to wherever it could go. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you had a vision of where you could go, and you kind of kept that in the back of your mind. And you know. I hired uh, biomedical engineering students at uh, from Arizona State University and tried to have them do. Did, they did some uh, uh, patent searches to see what was out there and, and such. And so it was very much a learning process. I didn't know what I was doing, and that's why it took so long. And but it's it, it turned out pretty good. And so I, I still have some ideas and thoughts. And but here I am back doing all surgery all the time. And and I do other things, and we did some traveling, and of course, the real estate stuff too. So it's a busy, busy life. Oh, that's awesome! Well, I appreciate you sharing all that. I mean, I think that's a lot of good food for thought for our listeners. Important to to just keep at it every day and make things exciting by working on your dreams. Don't give up when you hit a wall. Things like that. I think you're a great example of all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 got I've got whacked so many times and ran into so many walls, and you know, I just got a thick skin and a hard head and play dumb if I have to, or be humble, you know, be humble. Hey, you know, I uh, I don't know, 
I, I think it can work. You may not think you have a thousand reasons why it won't work, but I don't know that, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> All I know is I think it can work. You know? Exactly. You focus on the one reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you're doing this and uh, be interesting to see kind of, kind of where this goes and uh, maybe yeah. the Rogan, Jim Rogan, whatever his name is. <laughs> Joe, Rogan. Joe yeah. Rogan. Yeah. Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think that the whole podcast thing is very interesting. I mean, there's guys I listen to. I, I love, Guy named Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know Jordan at all or listen to any of his stuff. And there's just a lot of a lot of cool things. And, and to be able to spend your time listening to what you want to listen to and people you want to listen to. And it's it's an amazing time to be alive. It's an amazing time to be an oral surgeon. So these guys out there, you're 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 lucky. You get, you know, it's not gonna be easy. There's there's change out there, and that's a whole nother topic. And but uh, a lot of a lot of great things you can do. So I wish everybody best of luck. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. If I can do anything for anybody, just uh, give me a call. Thanks so much. All right, buddy. Take care. Have a good weekend, everybody. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.